Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we'll be saluting World War II veterans and their service to our country. First we'll have on Bill Duke's Columbia restaurateur, who came up with the idea, at least in South Carolina, of promoting honor flight. That is providing the means for World War II veterans to be flown to Washington, D.C. to see the World War II Veterans Memorial. It is a wonderful program honoring the men and women that Tom Brokaw called our greatest generation. We'll also have an encore presentation, a portion of the interview I did a while back with World War II hero and Columbia native T. Moffat Burris. First, your NPR news break. With me in the studio today is Bill Dukes, who is chairman of the board of directors of Honor Flight South Carolina, which is honoring our World War II veterans. And Bill, welcome to the journal. Thank you very much, Walter. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk uh, a little bit about Bill Dukes first, and then we'll get into talking about Honor Flight and your dad and World War II vets. Okay. Let's talk about you a little bit. Well, I, uh, I'm originally from Columbia. I graduated from uh, Dreher High School okay. and the University of South Carolina. Had the opportunity to uh, go in the Air Force through ROTC mm-hmm. and served uh, during the Vietnam War. I served in Thailand. Thailand, okay. And uh, we actually were the support uh, basis for the uh, F-105s that uh, would do the bombing missions mm-hmm. in North Vietnam. And that experience is one that I'll never forget, Walter. We, uh, we would get up in the morning and see all the airplanes leave. Yeah. And then that afternoon, we would count the airplanes that came back mm-hmm. and hope that we had them all. On many occasions, they would not all come back. And, yeah. and what was your connection with the Office of Aging? Well, I um, had supported uh, Andre Bauer during mm-hmm. his uh, campaign. And um, when the governor uh, gave him a department to be responsible for, uh, it was the Office of Aging. Mm-hmm. And because of Andre and because of a wonderful director that I think you know, <laughs> Neela Gibbons, I had the opportunity to be together with mm-hmm. both of them as uh, Andre you know, took charge of that department along with uh, Neela's help. And I'll tell you what, to this day, I'm still involved in it. And I think that uh, our Office of Aging uh, is probably considered one of the top you know, offices within this country. With, with Honor Flight, it wasn't just dealing with older Carolinians. You really got into this because of a very personal experience you had with your own dad. I did. Yes, and I let's, did. And let's talk about that visit that you and your brother and your dad had to, to Washington, yeah. D.C. Well, that was pretty special. Um, I had um, been made aware of Honor Flight probably a year or so ago. And I thought that it might be a great project for me to be involved in in my community. But I wanted to test it out first. Mm -hmm. And so my brother and I, our families, we made a decision to take my father to Washington in June of this year. And how old was your dad? He's 92 years old. Okay. Now, we made this decision in January. And my dad was 91 at the time. His birthday was in April. And then the uh, event was in June. So here we are with a 91-year-old father that is in pretty doggone good health. Mm-hmm. But when you're looking at the, the, uh, our seniors, they're pretty fragile. Mm-hmm. And so we said a lot of prayers. Mm-hmm. And my dad was there with us. So mm-hmm. we made it uh, through that uh, process. My dad was there with us in Washington. And we went to that memorial. This is the, the World War II? World War II memorial, yes. It's positioned, situated on the mall. Mm-hmm. It's the only other. Mo- it's the only monument other than the Washington Monument that is on the mall. It had to meet certain requirements in order to be there, but it is there. My dad and my brother and uh, his four grandchildren, you know, were with us. The um, memorial is divided into two areas. One is the Atlantic side, and one is the Pacific side. My father served in the Pacific. There are plaques that designate some of the big battles of mm-hmm. particular theaters. Uh, my father's uh, battle was Leyte, mm-hmm. the Gulf of Leyte. I walked my dad around, and finally we got to Leyte, and I just backed away from him. Mm-hmm. He was just quiet, and I could just tell very moved by it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then his four grandchildren came up with him. He just started talking about some of his experiences and had really never talked about those experiences before. We, we let him just enjoy the monument, and the most uh, enjoyable piece of that for him was the number of visitors that would come up to him and thank him for his service. Mm-hmm. And then the number of his fellow comrades that would then come together, and they would just introduce themselves and start talking about where they were. And many of those people had never had the opportunity to do that nor ever made the effort to start talking about it. But we had, we had a wonderful experience, and it motivated me to the point that I came back home and said, that's what I want to do for our community and to recognize the World War II veterans in this region and see what we could do to help them have that same experience. Okay. Now, you said you had heard about Honor Flight. So this exists in other states? Yes. Uh, Honor Flight was created by a gentleman, retired physician uh, in the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. He was working with a lot of veterans through the VA hospital and had had the opportunity to see the memorial himself started asking the veterans that they had had the opportunity to see it, and most of them had not had the opportunity, and it was either because of physical restraints or financial restraints. And so he was a member of a flight club, and he got some of his buddies, and they took single-engine airplanes and started taking some veterans to the memorial. Mm-hmm. That was the start of Honor Flight. And now, uh, as an example, on our flight that we took, our inaugural flight that we took on November the 15th, we had chartered a U.S. Air 737, and we had 143 people on the airplane. We had 91 World War II veterans, mm-hmm. and the remainder were some media and guardians mm-hmm. who were the uh, caretakers. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Bill Dukes about the Honor Flight Program honoring World War II veterans. In the country right now, there are about still three million World War II vets living, but we're losing veterans at about 1,500 a day. Yes, sir. Yes. That's why the urgency of, of trying to do these flights Uh, and provide these opportunities to these veterans here in our community. We have, uh, as I said, we had 91 veterans join us on the first flight. I will tell you that one of the persons that was going to be on that flight about uh, six weeks prior to the flight had a severe heart attack and passed away. Mm. That's a fact. And we had several that uh, one had a stroke, one fell and broke his arm, could not go with us. Uh, Several of them, you know, had the virus, but um, I've been in touch with all of those, and they are ready to go in April. How much does it cost to charter a plane? About $55,000 for the airplane and for the buses Mm -hmm. in D.C., and it, for the f- meals. Is this the one that you fly up in the morning and come back yes, in the sir. evening? So, so yes, sir. There's yes. no overnight or anything no, like that? No, no, no. And, and the reason for that is, again, the, the, the veterans are very fragile. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, if we stayed overnight, many of them could not join us. Yeah, okay. And so, yes, it was a, uh early morning. They were just, they were just ready to go. And uh, their families had dropped them off. We had uh, some volunteers. We had a, a bikers organization that's a patriotic bikers group. And they came out there, and I think there was about 30 of them. And they lined, made two lines, and they each had American flags, and they created an arch in the airport. And every veteran, when they signed in and on their way to security, they walked under the arch. We had a band out there when they left. And it was just a great send-off. But they had not seen anything until we got to Washington Reagan Airport. And, and that reception was something else. Oh, it was unbelievable. And it started with a, a fire truck water arch uh, at Reagan Airport. And that is the highest honor that an airport 
can do for anyone flying in that's a dignitary. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had, U.S. Air had made these arrangements. There was a 20-piece orchestra, and it was patriotic music. And those guys got off that airplane, and it was a combination of smiles and tears. Mm -hmm. There were people up there that have done this on a volunteer basis. And the, uh, one little cute lady, I'll never forget it, but she says, okay, guys, you remember the USO? I'm a USO girl. And she started <laughs> dancing with them and just dancing them out through the terminal. And what the Reagan Airport had done is they make an announcement whenever an honor flight is arriving. Mm -hmm. And they let everybody in the airport know that there's a distinguished group of World War II veterans, you know, that'll be arriving at gate, our gate was gate 38. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, what there was a crowd of people there there was clapping there was yelling and the band and these guys absolutely you know did not expect I did not expect it mm -hmm. it was just absolutely an incredible experience and the other neat thing about that day and and we were blessed is that for four days out I had been checking the weather forecast mm -hmm. and it was thunderstorms and rain mm -hmm. that morning I made a phone call to the FAA and the guy said, it looks like that system is stalled. I said, well, sir, if you could do anything to just blow that along, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> and you know what he said, Walt? He said, well, I'm in sales. You're going to have to talk to the production people about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did talk to the production people. <laughs> and, um, Walter, we got there. We had the water arch. We got off the airplane, got in the terminal, and the sun came out. Uh and it stayed with us throughout our whole visit at the World War II Memorial, the Korean Memorial. We got to Arlington Cemetery, and we walked back from the changing of the guard. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, look, most beautiful rainbow I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. Over Arlington? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm getting goosebumps just listening to you, Bill. Oh, it's, no, just, it's incredible. And then when you got the, the folks back here. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it's a pretty long way from the gate down the moving stairway to mm -hmm. the lobby. And lo and behold, if we didn't have the Irmo Junior ROTC Sabre Guard. So here they are creating an arch mm -hmm. with sabers. We have students from Gilbert Middle School. And we'll talk made, about them in oh, a few minutes. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And then we had, I don't know, we had 200 people or more. You know, plus we had the Fort Jackson Army Band and, again, the patriotic mm -hmm. songs. And some of the little notes that I've gotten back, you know, it just, it, it was just overwhelming. Well, uh, you, had, you had one handwritten note from an 84-year-old, I thought that was. Oh, yeah. You've got several. That we, that we'll, they'll read them because I think it's important, but this, this one touched me particularly. Well, the, again, it starts with words could never, you know, describe what the honor flight to Washington meant to me. The surprising reception at Reagan, seeing the memorial honoring us, the changing of the guard at Arlington, the bumpy ride home, topped off by the unbelievable, heart-stopping, very emotional, welcome home and the expression of thanks for your service. Bill, at 84, only the pearly gates can top it. Mm. Thanks. And this is from Walter Howell, and and just um, and you, you've you've got I know you've got a stack so of these, many of them, but but, the, but that one in particular I thought was his comment about that only the pearly gates could, yeah. could could top that. Well, uh, and I've heard thing. this. I've heard I've gotten calls from family members. Walter, the thing that happened on this flight that I've heard over and over again, and I watched it, is that ninety-one veterans went on this flight. Ninety-one veterans came back with ninety new friends. When men get to be in their late 80s and 90s, there are not that many of their own friends that are still around. But right. here you've got contemporaries, and that, that does make a difference. Absolutely. And they also have that shared experience. Yes, yes. And what, uh, what, what I want to do is continue to keep this group together. Mm -hmm. And we've got, um, we've got an opportunity to, to share with them a documentary you know, mm -hmm. that was done uh, by ATV, mm -hmm. and uh, we're going to provide that to them. And I want to do something sometime in the spring to uh, have maybe a little reunion and, and just keep it, you know, keep it going because it really brought some of these people to life. And, and that, that's a testimonial from their families, 
that uh, they've never seen their fathers or their mothers in several cases. We mm-hmm. had uh, six women, mm-hmm. you know, that joined us on the flight. Uh, they said, you know, we've never seen dad, grandpa, or mom this excited about something. Well, people don't often remember that there were women yes. veterans of World War II. Not only women veterans, there were also a lot of African Americans mm-hmm. that were involved in World War II. And it was a very challenging time for a lot of the African Americans, but we had seven, eight African Americans with us on this trip. Was Judge Perry one of them? Because he's a very proud World War II. No, no. No, but I didn't know that. Yes. I, th- th- well, I would appreciate if anyone in our community that is aware of someone that would like to be part of this or they think, you know, they would like to, you know, complete an application for is to just visit our website and please do so. Um, because because we have also, as, as you know, we've got some of the original Tuskegee Airmen. That's correct. The black pilots here in South Carolina. That's correct. And There's so, one particularly in Sumter, and yeah. we made effort to try to get in touch with the person, and he was unable to join us. But we do have an invitation, you know, outstanding mm-hmm. for him to join us in the uh, spring. Yeah, so, so when we do our following flights, uh, we're going to make sure, again, that we get, you know, a, a strong representation of all that served. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one gentleman here from Columbia, Mr. Uh, Solomon Bright, who is, uh, Solomon is um, 89 years old. Mm-hmm. He's the oldest of 13 children, an African-American. He was a steward on the USS Bowers. Mm-hmm. And, but he was also a tremendous marksman they had found out. Mm-hmm. Okay, he would go hunting, you know, out in Blythewood. Mm-hmm. And he was a great marksman. And so they, uh, whenever they started getting, uh, his ship started getting attacked, they uh, said, Bright, you man the gun. <laughs> and he shot down, He's, uh, he saved the ship. He was one of the people that, um, you know, saved his ship. And uh, Solomon joined us on the trip, just as spry as can be. And not only was he with us, but when we got to Washington, D.C., I think there were 12 members of his family that had rented, you know, a van, mm-hmm. and they were there at the memorial to meet him when he arrived. Oh, how, how, oh it was what, just, a, what a great story. Oh, it was just great. I mean, so many stories. We could go on and on. <laughs> well, well we, we will for a while, but I, I want to talk about the young men and women at Gilbert. Oh, Yes. Oh, that was pretty special. Gilbert Middle School, right? Yes, yes, yes. That was special. But I, I, I have to also say Gilbert Middle School, Lonnie B. Nelson Elementary School, Pillion Elementary School, Irmo Elementary School. I've had some wonderful experiences with those schools. And those schools, their, their principals or someone in that school uh, got motivated mm-hmm. to help support this project during Veterans Week. And it was just, it was just, the timing was just perfect for us in that our first flight was November the 15th, which was the Saturday of Veterans uh, mm-hmm. Week. So the Gilbert Middle School people had called and wanted uh, to, to do a fundraiser for Honor Flight. Mm-hmm. So we went out to uh, Gilbert Middle School, and I took Andre Bauer with me because Andre was one of our honorary chairs for Honor Flight, and because of the Office of Aging, is very appropriate. And also Colonel Chuck Murray, who is a retired World War II veteran and a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor, mm-hmm. and he lives in Columbia. So he was with us, and we were there to kick off on their little morning TV show a fundraiser for Honor Flight. And their goal was $2,500. Mm-hmm. And about 10 days later, I got a call from the principal, and he says, Bill, we have approached close to $3,000, and we've got another couple weeks to go. They had invited me to come to their assembly, their uh, Veterans Day assembly. They presented me a check for $8,000. I mean, that's <laughs> about 15% of what it costs for that first flight. Oh, unbelievable. That those, chil- that the, those, those children raised. The community. The, community, the children but, but, and the community just a tremendous, tremendous effort and an example. Um, that, that got a little bit of media, mm-hmm. and then I got other phone calls. We raised monies from Lonnie B. Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, Irmo Elementary School. I went to Pillion. Mm-hmm. Now, this, is, this, is, this just touches me. The lady calls, and she says, Mr. Dukes, 
we've looked and we've seen some of these schools that have contributed money. We want to be part of it. But, you know, we're just not a wealthy community, but we want to do something. Mm-hmm. We think we can raise maybe $100, $200. Mm-hmm. I went out there for their Veterans Day event. The lady said, and she was crying. She showed me first. She said, Mr. Stooks, I've got a check here for $400. Mm-hmm. And she showed me this mock check. But then she said, but I've got something better. She showed me another mock check for $500. Within that morning, before we had the presentation, they had collected another $100. That my hope is that as we move toward our next flight, that we just get more of the students. That's where I've had my most fun. I haven't had, I, I haven't knocked on the doors of the big corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, uh, I've enjoyed my relationships with the, with, with the students, with the teachers, mm-hmm. uh, with those small fundraisers, the $10, the $20. Mm-hmm. So we, we believe we're going to need three more flights at a minimum. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you're really just working right now in, this is the Midlands, so to speak. Yes, sir. Well, the, five, the counties, uh, Kershaw, Orangeburg, uh, we actually had someone from Florence County. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, we couldn't say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got an application in. But we're looking right now at uh, primarily Newberry, Kershaw, uh, Orangeburg, Richland, and Lexington counties. Okay. Yes. So, for example, our listeners in Charleston and Buford and Florence and Greenville and places like that, folks in their community need to get involved. And Yes. And yes, there is a great opportunity, and I'd be very happy to help them. We'll mentor them. And if there's a person that's out there that, you know, is frail, and just, I mean, it, it wants to go up there. I'll tell you what, we'll make arrangements. We had some people from Dorchester. We had some people from Charleston. We had some people from um, Florence. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you give us your, your website? We'll, we'll also post it, by the way, as okay. we always do on, on the journal's website. But just give, give our listeners your website information yes. right now. It's www.honorflightsc.com. Okay. Honorflightsc is all the same. Okay. And then .com. If people make a contribution, that is a tax deductible. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. And we use uh, the uh, South Carolina Guard Foundation. They're the organization that uh, are allowing us to uh, let our funds flow through. Mm-hmm. So they are. Yes, they are that uh, 501. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. You get applications. How do you choose who goes? Uh, it's we're, we're basing it pretty much on a first come, first, come, first, first. serve, uh, in, in order of receipt of the application. However, we will provide, we, we will give preferential treatment to the more aged and also to any veteran that has a terminal disease or a really life-threatening situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get front of the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had one veteran that uh, it was not he that had the terminal illness. But it was a hospice that sponsored, you know, wanted to sponsor his seat. And it was on behalf of his wife, who is terminally ill. And her wish was for him to have the opportunity to go visit the memorial. Mm -hmm. Pretty special. Yeah. So if if I wanted to sponsor an individual, I could do that? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes. And if uh, we also have opportunities for persons that would like to go along with us and serve as the caretakers, and we call those the guardians, Mm -hmm. and guardians uh, have that opportunity to go, but uh, we ask that they pay for their seat. Mm -hmm. The value, pretty much the value of a seat Mm -hmm. is $500. We had 35, uh, 38-some guardians, uh, each of them paid $500 for the honor Mm -hmm. of going along and being caretakers for these special people. And all of that information is on, is on your yes, website? Sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, yes, absolutely. Along with a lot of uh, pictures, a lot of um, media coverage, and we had some great media coverage. I know that uh, our system program, Big Picture, was Yes, was absolutely. There. Yes, yes, Mark, 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 uh, Mark went with us, and uh, they're the ones that did this, uh, this documentary for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's going to make copies available the veterans don't know this yet, but um, he's going to make copies available so that I can then send to each of the veterans that went on this first trip a copy of the uh, documentary. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, WIS, they had a crew that went with us. And then we had uh, Jeff Wilkinson in the state newspaper that went with us. And 10 weeks prior to the trip, uh, he started doing profiles R- of the, the uh, veterans. Paper, yes. And that is a, that was just a great great situation. And it really created some great awareness. And it allowed, again, some of these veterans 
to um, you know tell their story. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's some great stories. There are some great stories. Let's wrap up this part of the program. And any last words you'd like to to give to our listeners? Well, the only thing that I can say is, as I said earlier, this experience was absolutely the most gratifying thing that I've ever done in my life. And for anyone that wants to get involved in it, it is a life-changing experience to watch this and to see these veterans and see what their response is to our saying thank you. Bill Dukes, chairman of South Carolina Honor Flight, I want to thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and coming up next is an encore interview with World War II veteran and hero, Columbia native, T. Moffett Burris. You actually jumped into Italy, did you not? Uh, jumped in, first in Sicily. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was our first combat mission. It was the first invasion, actually, of the European continent, if you want to classify Sicily as being part of the continent. Mm-hmm. It's an island. So um, the 504 uh, and the 505 parachute regiments uh, parachuted into Italy, the first troops there. We ran into anti-aircraft fire and the formation split, mm-hmm. and this was a night jump. And my plane turned to the right instead of the left where it was supposed to go and dropped us 55 miles from the drop zone. Were you uh, behind enemy lines? It was totally occupied. The island of Sicily was to- totally occupied by the Germans and the Italians. So being a night jump, we didn't know exactly where we were, and we did not realize that we were 55 miles from our designated drop zone because we'd drop on a signal given to us by the pilot or the navigator and there were 17 men per plane and that first night I got together with three other members of the of the stick as we called it and as we were sitting behind a rock wall on the edge of a grape vineyard trying to figure out where it was we looked up the road and uh, saw a company of Italians marching down the road rifles slung across their shoulders totally unaware that we were there so I turned to the other two and said, well, we have two options. We stay here and fight, or do we sneak off into the dark? Well, of course, we were trained to fight in small groups to cause as much disruption as we could. And so we cut loose with a barrage of about six grenades and caused a great deal of confusion, a lot of casualties. And um, what was left of them took off in one direction and we the other direction <laughs> in the grape vineyard. And the next morning, about daylight, as we started to dig in, uh, they spotted us and had us almost surrounded and uh, had us pinned down with machine gun fire. And we were beginning to think our first day in combat might be our last. But about that time, an artillery barrage came in and British soldiers came in behind that. When they got even with us, we stood up and said we were Americans. They almost shot us, uh, thought we were Germans, that it was a trick. I can recall the British sergeant saying, well, if you'd have said you was a Yank, I might have believed you. And I said, well, you dead and shot me first because I'm not a Yank. I'm a rebel from <laughs> South Carolina. Uh, so on we go fighting with the British chasing these Italians and about mid-morning, a whistle blows, and everybody stops. I asked the British lieutenant, why are we stopping? He says, it's tea time. I said, what? you got to be kidding. You're going to stop in the middle of a firefight and brew up tea? Yeah, don't worry about it. We'll catch up with them later. But what we learned is that we had ambushed the relief going down to the pillboxes. We were just a mile in from the beach. And uh, they told the defenders in the pillbox that there was enemy behind the line. They all left their pillboxes and were uh, up in the vineyards chasing three lost paratroopers. And the British Seaborne Force landed without a shot being fired. So I guess you would say we were an undesignated diversionary attack. <laughs> well, when did you link up with your, the rest of your unit? Never saw them at all during the entire Sicilian campaign. Uh, we fought with the British and uh, for a period of time, and then was shipped back to Africa on a British ship with a load of Italian prisoners. 
And when the Sicilian campaign was over, the rest of our unit came back to Africa for re reorganizing and then uh, getting ready for the invasion of Italy. Okay. We made a seaborne landing at Salerno, and that was our first encounter, really, uh, with the Tiger tanks. And they were awesome vehicles, awesome weapons. How about the German? Of the German Tiger German tanks. tanks. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a rough beachhead, and we almost pushed back in, but we held on and got reinforcements. Then our unit was pulled out, and we moved several miles up the beach and made another seaborne landing at Meori, and then across a mountain and down into uh, Naples and captured Naples, the first major city in Italy, to fall. Mm -hmm. I would say at this point, for those who have never experienced combat, you'd have no way of knowing what it was like unless you had uh, been involved in the winter campaign in Italy. The Germans were not your only enemy. The weather and the terrain was just as bad. We fought for three months without relief over the mountains of Italy, tall, high, rocky mountains, cold, sleet, snow, rain, mud, just freezing. You were wet, cold all the time. You didn't knock off at 5 o'clock and go home and have a hot meal and uh, take a shower and sleep in a bed with sheets. You stayed on the cold, wet, frozen ground. You were fighting in about the only change of clothes that you carried was socks and underwear. Mm -hmm. But as far as the rest of your uniform is concerned, uh, your combat fatigues, uh, they were shreds before we finished that campaign. And all the time, you were climbing up those rocky hills on your hands and knees, every step afraid of stepping on a landmine, with the crowds up on top shooting down at you, artillery coming in. Everything that you owned, you carried on your back or on mules. Uh, there were no roads going up there. All of our ammunition, food, everything was carried on your back on mule packs. So it was a very, very rugged three months. A lot of casualties from frostbite and, and sickness as well as uh, from enemy fire. All right, and, and after Italy, did you go back to the U.K. for a while? Or? Well, first of all, just before Monte Cassino was taken, we were pulled off the mountain, sent back to Naples, loaded on boats, to make another seaborne landing at Anzio, which was a beachhead just south of Rome. And that was a very, very rough mission. Uh, at that time, I was a company commander, commanding headquarters company, 3rd Battalion, 504 Parachute Regiment. And I went in with 128 men, 119 men and eight officers. Seven days later, I had 13 men left. So that gives you an idea of uh, the you casualties. Had... Oh, uh, the Germans... That's 90% that's casualty rate. Yeah, about 85% casualty rate in one week. The Germans were determined that they were going to kick us off that beachhead. And we was, uh, actually saved the beachhead. And for that, our unit, the 3rd Battalion 504, was awarded a presidential unit citation, which was one of the first that was awarded during World War II. You devote a good part of your book to... Uh uh, the bridge too far as the, right. The that operation was um, known pretty much uh, from the book by Cornelius Ryan and the movie entitled "The Bridge Too Far." Why don't you tell our listeners about your personal participation in the combat at the Bridge Too Far? Well, at that time, when when we were in England, I became the company commander of I Company, which was a rifle company, combat company, and the mission of my company was to capture the north end of the Grave Bridge, G-R-A-V-E, Holland. That was the longest bridge in Europe. And we landed just a few hundred yards from the end of that bridge. This was a daylight jump on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, I had all of my company assembled with the weapons, the ammunition, no casualties, not even a sprained ankle. And within one hour's time, we had the bridge. So we thought, well, maybe this is going to be a breeze. As Montgomery said, this will be the operation to bring the war to an early close and you'll be home by Christmas. So we were beginning to think maybe he was right. But uh, things changed when we were not able to get 
the big bridge across the Wall River at Nijmegen, and the 508th Regiment, part of the 82nd Airborne, was running into very heavy resistance. It was defended by Tiger tanks and SS troops, and they couldn't get it. And the British troops in Arnhem, 10 miles away, were really being cut to shreds because they had dropped right on top of a German Panzer division with just hundreds of Tiger tanks. And it's very difficult for an infantryman to fight a Tiger tank. Yes, sir. So um, the commanding general of our division, uh, Jim Gavin, uh, came up with the idea of sending a battalion down three miles below the bridge and um, making a river crossing and hit the bridge from both ends at the same time. So our battalion was selected to make that river crossing. Uh, if ever there was a suicide mission, this one was it. It's been generally described as one of the most courageous and gallant acts of World War II. And there again, the casualty rate was extremely high. I had about 55% casualties in my company in about 15 or 20 minutes. You're in it. Open boats, canvas Open boats. Open boats. In daylight. Broad daylight. The enemy was lined up on the other side with machine guns and 20 millimeters artillery and mortars and we had to paddle across that river in the face of that fire. And they let us get about uh, halfway across, a third of the way across, before they realized that we were coming. They didn't think anybody would be foolish enough. I can imagine what the Germans were thinking sitting over on that machine gun. Those idiots are not really going to try to cross this river in paddle boats, but that's exactly what those idiots were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was in the one of the lead boats sitting on the back rung and I can recall there were two engineers in each boat and one of them's job was to use a paddle as a rudder. Uh, we were supposed to have 17 paddles in each boat. There were that many troops in each boat but the average of about five paddles per boat. So we had to paddle with our rifle butts. And uh, I remember the engineer saying, I saw his wrist turn red, and he said, Captain, will you take the rudder? I said, I've been hit. And then about that time, he caught a 20-millimeter high explosive through his head, just blew his head off, and uh, I was just covered with his brains and blood and caught some of the shrapnel in my side. But I took the rudder, and we managed to get the boat straightened out and got on across. In my boat of 17, we had three men killed and um, seven wounded. So we had 10 casualties out of the 17 that were in the boat. And as soon as we hit the bank, you had a 900-yard pasture flat as a pool table. And then at the end of that pasture was a dike and a road on top of it. And the Krauts were lined up behind that with machine guns. So after we got across the river, we had to charge 900 yards right straight into that machine gun and artillery fire. And uh, I know after about four or five boats hit the bank, and I, I looked on each side and saw that there were about 30 or 40 men. I said, okay, let's go. Head for the dike and don't stop for anything. Well, they did, and just charged right into it. And, of course, they were dropping like flies on the right and left from the machine gun fire. But uh, I guess about 20 or so made it to the dike and knocked out those guns. And then uh, we headed up the dike toward the bridge, which was three miles east. Mm -hmm. And uh, we continued moving up that road. We were coming to houses on each side, and I told the man, I said, let's check these houses because there can be crouts mm -hmm. uh, in the houses. You know, people don't seem to realize that there could be crouts in the houses asleep with all that firing that was going on, the artillery and the machine gun fire. doesn't bother them at all. When you haven't slept for 48 hours or 72 hours or something, you can sleep through anything. So the first house, I stepped up on the porch and opened the door in the room, the living room was just, floor was just covered with crouch sleeping in there. 
when one of them saw me and reached for his rifle, I just chunked a gammon grenade in and it just blew the whole side of the house out. And uh, there were no survivors. And then we continued charging toward the bridge. And, and when we got to the north end, it was just getting dusk and we caught the crowds by surprise. They had no idea we were on that side. They could not see the river crossing, the mm -hmm. ones that were at the north end of the bridge. So they were kind of milling around, watching the fight going on on the south end across the river. And the city of Nijmegen was just in flames. So uh, we, in a matter of just a few minutes' time, had about 200 prisoners that we put in one of the big columns of the bridge. It was hollow, and it was just a huge room in there, and we would just herd them into that room. And we... I ran up some concrete steps and got up to the top of the main road to the end of the north end of the Nijmegen Bridge. And as we started across, I told the men, uh, I said, Rivers, Lieutenant Rivers, take a couple of men, cut wires, any that you see. And then I sent some down along the base to cut any wires they saw on the uh, supporting pier. Because the Germans had mined the bridge. They had mined the bridge. and. We expected it to blow any minute. Well, as we started across, then we heard tanks coming across, but we could not tell whether they were German or British tanks. So we moved back uh, over the edge of the embankment to wait to see which uh, whose tanks they were, and then we immediately realized that they were British tanks, and we were waving them on on to Arnhem. And... Uh, I can remember climbing up on top of one of them as they stopped there and hugging him around the neck and said, we're glad to see you guys on to Arnhem and save the British troops up there. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with World War II veteran and hero, Columbia native, T. Moffat Burris. Let's touch briefly on the Battle of the Bulge. You mentioned it briefly in your book, and you told me earlier before we went on air uh, why you didn't spend a lot of time at the Battle of the Bulge, which seems to have captured the popular imagination. Well, uh, we were immediately ordered to go f forward and uh, try to stop the Germans, and we met them head-on, Cheneau, that's in Belgium. Knee-deep snow, freezing cold, we didn't have adequate clothing for that. We were not prepared for it. So we spent um, a month and a half up there fighting in that knee-deep snow, initially fighting the Tiger tanks with just um, hand grenades and uh, bazookas. Uh, that's very difficult to do. You were generally aiming for the treads, were you not? You to try to... That's right. You'd aim for the treads because that's all the damage that you could do. But you had to be at a pretty close range, and once you fired, if you missed, uh, they did not miss when they fired back with that 88. That was an awesome weapon. So uh, Patton was quite some miles away, and he had been ordered to move up there, and we were doing the best we could to stop them until Patton got there. Well, a couple of days later, he did get there and hit them head on and, and started pushing them back. I can remember uh, one time that uh, the Germans were attacking us and they were using flak wagons. Now that's a, a half track with 20 millimeter and machine guns mounted on it, not heavily armored like a, a tank. And uh, we slipped up on one and captured it. And then we turned that weapon back on the Germans. Well, when we had, we as paratroopers, uh, had that half track. We thought we were an armored division, so, <laughs> so we had a good time uh, turning that back on the uh, Germans. Uh, we blew a lot of bridges across canals, and area was just laced with canals. And of course, that would stop the tanks and uh, the German tanks. They had completely overrun the American division that was on that front line because they were green troops. That was their first combat. Mm -hmm. They had just been moved in, had never even seen a German. So when they were hit with that full force, uh, there was no way they could even slow them down. 
Uh, I can recall one particular battle for a town of Hersbach, Belgium. We were marching through the woods in single file, uh, my battalion, 3rd Battalion 504, in knee-deep snow, and we'd have to change off uh, lead scouts to try to break a trail in that snow. And we came to the edge of the woods, and there was this field out in front of us, and here was a whole um, battalion or regiment of German troops just marching across that open field, totally unaware that we were there. And we had three tanks with us at that time, and we brought them up to the edge of the field and opened fire, and we wiped out that entire tank battalion and moved in and captured that little town that they were moving out of, of Harrisburg. And uh, we killed over 300 Germans and captured about that many more and did not have a single casualty. So that was one of the occasions where the uh, surprise uh, determined the fate of that battle. All right. Mr. Burris, in addition to your your combat experiences, you and your unit also liberated a concentration camp. Would you mind sharing that horrifying experience with with us? Mm-hmm. Well, after the Battle of the Bulge, we were moved back into a rest area and then moved back to the Rhine River uh, just above Cologne. And we made a river crossing there. And uh, then we were on German soil. The German resistance was beginning to crumble at that time, and we started moving forward more rapidly. And we went to the village of Wobelin, which is just a little east of uh, Hamburg, and there was the worst sight I, I saw during the entire war. We came to Wobelin, and there we uh, liberated, and I say liberated, the German uh, guards had uh, left the camp. It was a concentration camp with just hundreds and hundreds of political prisoners, Jews and political prisoners, that had literally been starved to death. They were in these big buildings, about, say, 30 by 100. They had triple-decker bunks in there, and supposed to house three people in each one. There were six, mm-hmm. there were two in each of the single bunks. Uh, they had had nothing to eat or drink uh, for three or four days, in addition to the fact that they had been starved up to that point. No sanitation. The building was actually three and four deep with bodies lying on the floor, and the stench was so horrible that if you got anywhere close to it, it made you sick. You had to wear a gas mask to really go in there. we got the ones that we could that were still alive and put them in vehicles and sent them back to hospitals. And But uh, that's that's a sight that's just incredible that man could be that inhumane to a fellow man. Uh, it's, it's something that we must never, never let happen again. Uh, Mr. Burris... There is a story that you have about the liberation of that camp and involving one of your soldiers that's really pretty gripping. Would you mind sharing that with us, please? I had a man in my company uh, that joined during the Battle of the Bulge. He was an Austrian Jew. And back when the Germans first invaded Austria, they took his entire family, his mother, father, brother, and sister, to a concentration camp and beat this young man, left him for dead, but he recovered, escaped from Austria, got to the United States, joined the army, joined the paratroopers, and uh, then was sent overseas and was assigned to my unit uh, just about the time of the Battle of the Bulge, and he fought through that. And uh, to the time that we got to Wobelin, where we liberated this concentration camp. Uh, This young man's total mission in life at that point was to try to locate his mother and father and brother and sister. When we liberated this uh, concentration camp, we found this uh, Catholic priest, and the young man asked him 
if he by any chance knew his mother and father and his family. And I remember the three of us standing there and talking. The Catholic priest said, I don't know how to tell you this, son, but your mother and father and brother and sister were put to death at this camp two weeks ago. I always have a problem telling this story without choking up. But if ever you saw two grown men cry, I held this young man in my arms and we both cried. Mr. Burris, thank you for, for telling us that story. Thank you, sir. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The greatest generation, the men and women who fought and served our nation in World War II, are literally dying out daily by the thousands. It's only in the last few years that the country has seen fit to erect a monument in their honor in our nation's capital. Some of these individuals are no longer able to get there on their own, whether it's financially or physically. The Honor Flight program, which has gone on in other states in which Bill Dukes has brought to South Carolina and promoted and helped underwrite along with a lot of other wonderful South Carolinians, this program is designed to take these heroes to Washington. It's just a one-day event. Take them to Washington so that they can see the monument that the nation has erected in their honor. It's really a wonderful tribute to the men and women in uniform from our state who served our country during World War II. And pairing with this honoring of World War II veterans, I wanted to resurrect as an encore for an interview I did with a man I consider a real World War II hero, and that is Colombian T. Moffat Burris. His story, his book have made quite an impression on me, and without question, I consider T. Moffat Burris part of the greatest generation. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Listings of all our programs, guests, and subjects, past, present, and upcoming, are at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org. Once you're there, you can also check out our blog. And you can subscribe to our weekly podcasts. Then you'll be able to download and hear Walter Edgar's Journal each week on your computer, iPod, or MP3 player. You'll find all this and more at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org.